Uh, today we continue uh, our sermon series uh, in the Minor Prophets uh, titled God Speaks Hope in the Darkness, but we are coming to an end. Uh, there were 12 Minor Prophets and this is the 11th one and we'll be wrapping up uh, next week as we look at uh, Malachi uh, or <clears throat> the Italian prophet Malachi as some uh, uh, like to pronounce his name. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm excited uh, after we wrap up this sermon series, uh, we're going to finish out the summer uh, looking at conversations with Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, as, uh, as I'm praying about what God is doing in, uh, in the life of TCC as we look to relaunch in the fall, uh, one of the things I've been praying about and struck by um, is, is just turning my eyes back to Jesus and, and asking uh, myself, uh, how, how can I follow him and how can my life be patterned after him? And uh, one of the amazing things in the Gospel of John is the number of individual conversations that people have with Jesus and how in those conversations we see what it means to know and make known uh, Jesus. Uh, and so uh, really looking forward to, to walking through those conversations with Jesus, uh, knowing and making Jesus known from the Gospel of John. But today we, we come to Zechariah, and um, in some ways it's a, it's a great introduction uh, to Jesus because the uh, <clears throat> prophet Zechariah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other book except Isaiah. Uh, there are over 70 different places um, <clears throat> in which the portion, portions of this book are alluded to, quoted, or cited in the New Testament. Uh, they mostly occur in the Gospels in relation to Jesus, as we'll see Zechariah 9, chapters 9 through 14, are some of the richest in, in expectation of the coming Messiah. But also the book of Revelation quotes uh, from Zechariah perhaps more uh, than any other Old Testament prophet except Ezekiel. So it's an it's a Old Testament book that has significant New Testament implications, and particularly in pointing us to the hope of the coming of our Savior, the coming Messiah. As we'll see in the book of Zechariah, the hope of, uh, of a Savior who's going to come, who will be pierced for our sins and yet will reign forever as our King. Uh, it, it, in some ways, it strikes me as I read Zechariah in the same way uh, that it strikes me when I read Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant from Isaiah. It's, it's like it, it's, it's yelling at us and pointing us to Jesus, and, and yet it's written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. <clears throat> but before we, we dig into to all of that, I, I really think it's important for us to kind of understand the context, and this builds a little bit on uh, what Pastor Chris taught last week from the book of Haggai. Um, these last three prophets actually fall uh, not before the exile of the Assyrian exile in 722 or the Babylonian exile in 586. It's not during the exile of over 70 years in the Babylonian exile, but it's actually at the very end. And in some ways it would be called post-exilic uh, in that it's after the exile. It's after the, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, all the people were taken away. Um, and, and this is when you see the book of Daniel and things like that. That's all taking place while Israel is in exile. At the end of uh, the reign of the Babylonians, the Persians uh, come to power and defeat the Babylonians. And a Persian king sends Israel, the Israelites, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. Uh, if you flip over to Ezra, which actually 
at, towards the beginning of the Old Testament, right after um, the books of uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, um, you'll come to, to the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and the, the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, the, the book of Ezra tells us that in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, God uh, put it upon his heart to send the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And it says that uh, God moves to allow the people of Israel to return. And not only do they return, but they return with bank. Uh, they, they take gold and silver and they're taking it all back to Jerusalem. Um, and, and it says that everyone, this is verse 5 of Ezra 1, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. That's, that's a key, key word here. It, it wasn't that everyone went back in this first wave, but it was those in whom the Lord had particularly stirred up their heart to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And it says that uh, it, you'll see a list of all the people who went back. And, and in chapter 3, it says that uh, the, the Israelites were led by a man named Zerubbabel. Um, that's a fun word to say three times fast. Zerubbabel uh, was a king-like figure, uh, a leader of the people who was in charge of rebuilding the temple. And so under Zerubbabel's leadership, Israel goes back and they lay the foundation of the new temple. Remember, the Babylonians came and they ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple that was built by King Solomon. And, and all the glory of the presence of God with the people of Israel was done away with. It was a tragic time. And in Jeremiah, it says that the, the people of Israel sat on the, on the banks of the river and wept for Jerusalem because as their city was destroyed, Along with it was, was, the, one, was the, uh, the expectation that God was going to be with them because he dwelt with them through the temple. And so they come back and they lay the foundation of the temple. Look at chapter 3, Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the new temple, the priests in their vestments came forward and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaphs, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David. And they sang this song, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. It was a good day. The foundation was laid. And while people were rejoicing, there were many who were weeping, it says in verses uh, 6 through, uh, excuse me, verses 12 through 13, because as they laid the foundation of the temple, it wasn't what the first temple was. There was this expectation that something more had to be coming. And so the people rejoiced on the one hand and yet wept on the other hand. And perhaps that was a sign of what was to come because in Ezra chapter 4 it tells us that though the, the Israelites came back to the land to rebuild the temple, there were other peoples that had resettled in the land and around Jerusalem. And they began to oppose the Israelites. They began to oppose Zerubbabel and oppose Israel. There were some people who wrote a letter and sent it to the king of Persia and said, hey, look in your history books. The Israelites weren't always a great people. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the, the king writes back and he shuts down the rebuilding of the temple. So there was all this expectation and, and excitement about the temple being re rebuilt. In Ezra 4, 4 through 5, it says, because of the discouragement and the opposition and uh, it says that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So one whole reign goes by 
of a king who had been favorably disposed uh, to Israel, uh, where the temple was on pause. I don't know if you've ever begun a project outside or maybe even a project in your house. Um, it's one of the, the hardest things to start a project and then to pick it back up. Uh, yeah, we've, we've been painting some in our house, and we've put some samples up on the wall in the, in the dining room. And so we have these two random splotches of paint on the wall. And that's great and all, but that was two weeks ago when I put those uh, splotches of paint up on the wall. And as I look ahead uh, to the next month, it's not likely that we're going to pick a color and paint the rest of the dining room for a while. Uh, there's, there's something about starting a project and then not finishing it that makes finishing it all the more harder. Um, I'm resisting uh, the application of my own uh, uh, dissertation experience right now. The, the starting of it is one thing, but the finishing of it is, uh, is another. And when you pause, it makes it all the more difficult to pick back up. And that's exactly what happens uh, with the temple. And you can imagine, especially when you're doing something outside, you, you lay the, the foundation and then the weeds start growing up. And uh, the birds come in and move things around, and the kids are probably playing and throwing rocks over the foundation, and, and everything gets more difficult, and the people are discouraged. And it says in Ezra chapter 5 that the prophets Haggai, which we looked at last week, and Zechariah, who were ministering at the same time, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. And Zerubbabel uh, was charged with rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets were with him supporting them. So Haggai and, and Zechariah are uh, alongside Zerubbabel in the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It tells us that uh, they started that work, and it would be a number of years later in, in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, when they would finish the work. The elders, it says, verse 14, the elders of the Jews built and prospered, through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. So the, the book of Zechariah is between Ezra 5.1 and Ezra 6.14, in between this period of time of discouragement in which the temple had been started, but it wasn't finished. It was a time of discouragement and opposition, a time of hope deferred. I don't know if you experience that when, when your expectation of what you think is going to happen is put on pause and that hope is deferred and disappointment comes in at the pace of the work and, and discouragement about the involvement of others or the opposition of others. This is where Zechariah finds himself. And it's somewhat unique in Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi because they're writing at a time where the people have something to do. They have a work that they are called to do in rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. But we're going to see that the work that God wants to do through Israel requires that Israel first be open to the work that God wants to do in them. So Zechariah shows us that the work God wants to do through us must always begin with the work that he wants to do in us. In other words, Israel, like ourselves, needed renewal. Another way of saying it is they needed revival. And I think what Zechariah shows us is the hope of revival. I don't know if you've heard people talk about revival. I think it's something that is a, a work of God that he does in the people of God that's brought about by his spirit through the preaching of God's word that brings about a tangible, evident work in the lives of believers and that spills over into those who don't know him coming to know him. But it's something sometimes that we can hear it prayed for and we can never see it and we can grow disillusioned and discouraged and wondering, will God ever do 
this great work of revival. We've heard about perhaps revivals in the past or revivals in particular places, and we wonder, can God do that here? Can God do that now? Can God do that in us? Can God do that through us? And, and I want to I help us to think about revival in a, in a general sense. When we hear the word revival, I think the primary thing a lot of times that we think first and foremost about is the evangelistic move of God that happens when people who don't know him come to know him. We think of that as being revival. There was a revival and there were many people who came to faith in Christ. But do you know that the evangelistic move of God in a revival isn't the primary work of revival. It's the fruit, if you will, of revival. It's the outworking of what happens when revival takes place because revival is first and foremost when God's people return to him. Revival is about God's people returning to him and God returning to them and working in his people in such a way that it's so evident that God is at work, that their lives are so changed and transformed that people take notice and can't help but come to know him. So before we think about the work that God wants to do out there in our community, and that's particularly a burden and a desire we have as we go through this summer, Zechariah is going to tell us that we need to take particular, pay particular attention to the work that God wants to do in here, in our hearts, and the work that God wants to do among us. The hope of revival is the hope of God's people returning to the Lord and God returning to us and working in us. And in fact, if you look at Zechariah 1.1, that's exactly what the book of Zechariah is about. It tells us that in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Zechariah is about the hope of revival. When God's people return to him, are transformed by his word, and set their eyes on Jesus. That's what it's talking about. So as you look at Zechariah, it's the longest of the minor prophets, uh, uh, maybe competing with Hosea for the, the longest uh, of, the, of the prophets. And <clears throat> what, I, what I want us to do uh, is give a 30,000-foot a view and then walk through the, the three main points that I think come out. In, in Zechariah chapters 1 through 6, you have eight visions. And then in chapters 7 through 8, you see two sermons or two exhortations of Zechariah to the people of Israel. And then Zechariah 9 through 14, you have two oracles. So uh, Zechariah is eight visions in chapters 1 through 6, two sermons in chapters 7 through 8, and two oracles in chapters 9 through 14. Let's bow our heads and pray. <laughs> if only it were that simple, right? What, is it, what does it mean? What do the visions mean? What do the sermons mean? What are the oracles about? Uh, in fact, I, 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 I really have noticed in studying uh, particularly the Minor Prophets, as they're somewhat a little bit more obscure than some other books, that every commentator of every uh, Minor Prophet feels like that Minor Prophet is the most difficult Minor Prophet uh, to understand. I'm like, I don't know if you guys got together and talked with one another and could come up with a conclusive, uh, you know, uh, determination on which one is the hardest, but um, they all feel, I feel like they all say the same thing, and it was no uh, different when I came to Zechariah. And if you look at Zechariah verses uh, chapters 1 through 6, just look at 
Look at the, the titles, the subheadings in your scriptures. They're, they're there as a summary of what's there. They're not inspired in the original, but they're there to help us and, and subdivide uh, the, the passages. It says, the vision of a horseman, the vision of horns and a craftsman. Chapter 2, the vision of a man with a measuring line. Uh, the vision in chapter 3 of Joshua, the high priest, and then a vision of a golden lampstand. And then there's the flying scroll, and my personal favorite, of a woman in a basket. And then there were four chariots with four horsemen. And Ric Flair was there. I'm just kidding. It wasn't Ric Flair. But the crown and the temple uh, were uh, the last of these visions. There's these eight visions that Zachariah sees. And, and I'm comforted in that Zechariah, after each vision is shown to him, uh, he has to ask the angel of the Lord who appears to him, can you help me understand it? Um, what does it mean, he says. And the angel of the Lord often responds, do you not understand? And Zechariah, I feel like, is probably saying, I wouldn't have asked you if I understood. No, I don't understand. Can you explain to me? And so um, I'm, I'm going to unfold these uh, eight visions uh, for us, hopefully in a quick manner. But the, the point is that the first point that I want us to see in Zechariah chapters one through six is the call to return to the Lord, return to the Lord. And all of these eight visions are unpacking for us who the Lord is, what the Lord does, how he works, what he promises. You see, if we're going to return to God, we have to see God for who he is. We have to know the God in whom we go to. He's, he's not a God who's distant and indifferent, but a God who's active and at work for the sake of his people. The, the vision of the man on a red horse or the horseman uh, in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 7 uh, through 17, speaks of God's jealousy for his people. It speaks of his promise to restore them and, and how he sends out this horseman uh, to patrol the earth. It, it shows God's sovereignty and that he's in charge of the nations and, and he loves his people and he's going to protect them and restore them. And then the, <clears throat> the four horns and the four craftsmen that come after speaks of, of, of not only God's protection of Israel, but of his judgment against the nations. Most likely the, uh, the, the four horns that it speaks of uh, are in reference similar, if you remember, in, uh, in Daniel to the statue, uh, that Daniel has this vision of a statue, and it refers to four different kingdoms, most likely the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. That would have brought them up to the time in which they were, and then the Greeks who were to come. And it speaks of how God's going to judge uh, and uh, judge the nations who have oppressed and opposed God's people. It talks about <clears throat> how, uh, how they how God has used them for judgment, but how they've taken advantage of that and, and further uh, oppressed the people of Israel. And then there's this vision of a man with a measuring line or a, a surveyor, and it's talking about how God is going to restore Israel and, uh, and he's going to dwell with them. He's going to establish his presence and his glory in their midst, it says in uh, Zechariah 2.5. And it says he's going to draw the nations to himself. In verse 11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. This is radical that God would say of the nations. They will be my people, not just Israel, but through Israel. Like God promised Abraham, he would draw nations to himself, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Verse 13, be silent, all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself 
from his holy dwelling. You see, as he's going through these visions, these first three visions that we see, we're, we're, being, we're being reminded of who God is. A God who's jealous for his people, a God who's just and will bring judgment, a God who's faithful to his promises to dwell with his people and to draw the nations to himself. <clears throat> Sometimes as you uh, look at a series of, uh, of visions uh, or oracles in a, in a book, uh, sometimes the last one is most important. Sometimes they, they kind of have this parallel structure in which the middle is the most important. Um, <clears throat> for uh, all the, the literary nerds out there, this is called a chiastic structure. Uh, and <clears throat> if you think of, uh, <clears throat> of just kind of a, uh, almost an arrowhead pointing forward, it's like there's, there's parallels and then the main uh, middle part is the main point. And that's kind of what happens here because the middle two visions are the vision of Joshua the high priest and the vision of a golden lampstand. The vision of Joshua the high priest, God says, remember the context, it, Israel is back in the land. They started building the temple, but they got discouraged. They were afraid. They gave up. And God is sending Zechariah to remind them of the work that God's called them to do. And the, to get them to do the work that God's called them to do, he says, come back. Come back to the Lord. Your greatest need, if God is going to work through you, is that you would be cleansed from your sins. And he gives this vision of Joshua, who was literally the high priest of Israel at this time, as they come back to Israel. And, and it's somewhat, um, somewhat of an unsettling vision because Joshua is there in, in these soiled clothes, it says that uh, Satan has come, and the Lord <clears throat> is, uh, is is Satan is there accusing him in chapter three in of chapter three verse one, and then it says in verse two, the Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is it not is not this a brand plucked from the fire?" Now Joshua is there standing in filthy garments, and the angel said to those who are standing before him, "Remove the filthy garments from him." And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It goes on in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring you my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before you, Joshua, a stone with seven eyes. This is symbolic, um, uh, symbolic vision that he's getting, re referencing God sovereignly working. And he's saying, I will engrave this inscription. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God's here talking about how he's going to purify and cleanse his people. And here we have the first reference to the hope of the coming Savior and Messiah who will be called my servant, the branch. If you just go on your Bible app and you search servant, you'll find uh, numerous references in Isaiah referencing the servant of the Lord, one who's going to come as God's servant and bring a light to the nations and bring about forgiveness of sins for Israel. And you'll see a branch who's spoken of in Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. It's this uh, this small branch that's going to come about and bring about God's full redemption. 
And it's the, the first glimpse of our ultimate hope here is that when we return to the Lord, it's God through this promised Savior who's going to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our sins. And Joshua the high priest is acting on behalf of Israel, making sacrifices on their behalf in the Old Testament. But one day one will come who himself will not only make the sacrifice, but will be the sacrifice for us in our place. And so we see this vision of of being cleansed from our sin. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, we have a gold lampstand and two olive trees. And it speaks of how God will empower Israel through Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And the temple is important because it was the place of God's dwelling. It was the sign that God was with his people, the tabernacle in the past and the temple in the present, that God was with his people and then, as I said, those are the two central parts. I'll come back to chapter 4 in a minute. Chapters, uh, Really, chapter 5, we have the flying scroll, the woman in the basket, and then the, the four chariots. And, and we're reminded of how God reveals Israel's sin in the flying scroll. The scroll is unfolded, and it reveals Israel's sin. And then the woman in the basket, uh, strange as it may be, is a reference to God removing uh, the sin from uh, Israel, taking it away. Uh, And then we have this reminder of God's sovereignty once more over the nations of the four chariots as they go out and they patrol the earth and God brings about his judgment. In all of this, those two middle visions of chapter three and four remind us as Israel is discouraged in their work, what they need most. They need most to be forgiven of their sins. That's chapter three. And they need most to be strengthened by God's Spirit. Look back at chapter 4. As it says in verse 1, The angel who talked with me came again, and he woke me like a man who is awakened of his sleep. And he said, What do you see? And I said, I see a bowl. Excuse me. I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each lamp that are on top. I told you it was somewhat strange as you get into these visions. Uh, And... And there the two olive trees were by it. And here's my favorite. And the angel uh, said, or, and I said to the angel, uh, what exactly are these uh, that I'm looking at? And the angel said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord, I don't know what these are. <laughs> and, the, and he said, I just love the honesty of that. And he said, this is the word to the Lord, of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by the spirit of the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know what the Lord of hosts has sent me, that he has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and they shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And it says that God will do this in the remainder of chapter 4. It's this reminder. They're called to rebuild the temple. They're discouraged, now distracted, have turned back to their sin, feeling overwhelmed of the task before them that they got started but they haven't completed. And here in this vision, as God reveals himself and calls them to return to him, he says what you need most is the forgiveness of your sins and the strength of God's spirit. I find such encouragement as he speaks to Israel at this time as they're doing this work of rebuilding. 
<clears throat> Treasuring Christ Church is not the temple uh, in the uh, sense of what they're doing here in Zechariah. <clears throat> but as we think about the work that God has called us to do, the discouragement that it can be as you get started and we face the, the challenges of this past year, <clears throat> the difficulties of starting small and trusting God for the growth, the discouragements that come when things don't go at the pace that you want or in the way that you want. But God says that his work happens not by strength, not by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And this whole week I've been praying this prayer. God, build your church, build our church, not by our might, not by our strength, but by your Spirit. And the only way in which the power of the Spirit of God is at work is when we come and return to him. When we say, God, have your way in us. When we confess our sin to him. When we're honest about our discouragements. When we don't run from our disappointments, but when we run to him in dependence on his spirit, reminded that he's the one who works. He's the one who works in us first so that he may work through us. Not by might, not by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord. The work that God wants to do in each of our lives. The, the putting away sin. I don't know if you felt the discouragement of, of having to wrestle and, and try to, to put away sin in your life. Having to experience the struggle of wanting to, to turn from something. I, I've had the experience of, of just praying, even in the normal flow of my day, Lord, help me today to, to, not, to not be upset at my interruptions, to, to not not be frustrated when things don't go my way with my family or my kids interrupt my day or somebody uh, doesn't do what I want them to do. And, and as soon as I pray it, I can get up and then go and be frustrated right after praying it. I'm like, I just, Lord, I just asked for you to help me <laughs> like it's his fault, right? And, and, and so wanting God to work in me and yet feeling the frustrations of that. And if it doesn't come out outwardly, it's in, inside my heart, sometimes seething, sometimes just bubbling under the service. And I want God to work in me. I don't know if you've had that experience where you just want God to work in you and, and you ask him and yet it doesn't feel like it's happening. You grow discouraged. And I just come back to what God says through Zechariah, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit. God does his work in us by the power of his spirit, which requires us to acknowledge our desperate need for him to acknowledge our our need for him to work in us what we cannot work in ourselves. We cannot overcome sin in our own strength. We cannot build our church in our own strength. We cannot see our friend come to faith in Christ in our own strength. We cannot make disciples in our own strength. We cannot love the people that God's put around us in the church, in our community. We cannot live the lives that God has called us to live as his people apart from the spirit of God at work in us. Return to me, God says, and what you need most is forgiveness of sins and the power of the Spirit of God at work in you. And Zechariah 6, 9 concludes by telling us not only do we need to depend on the Spirit, but we need to look to the promised work of our Savior. It says in 6, 9 through 15, <clears throat> this crown, this vision of the crown and temple that there's the, the priest Joshua will sit on the throne 
And yet the language, though God is going to use Joshua in the nation of Israel this time as the temple's rebuilt, listen to the language. It says, it says in verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on this throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both and the crown shall be in the temple as a reminder to Helam, to Bijah, to Jediah and the, <clears throat> the son of Zephaniah. It's speaking of the crown and the, and the temple coming together, the king and a priest. It's speaking of a king who is a priest. These two things don't go together in the Old Testament. There is a priest and there is a king and there is a prophet. And you don't see the, 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 the intermingling of them because they each have a, a, a different role in the economy of God. In fact, one time we have King Uzziah in the Old Testament who was a king who went into the temple to offer sacrifice and God struck him in the moment with leprosy because he was a king, not a priest. And here God's saying that in this vision uh, through, through Joshua in the near term, but through this promised one called the branch in the future, there's going to be one who will build the temple of the Lord, who will be clothed with majesty and glory, who will sit and rule on the throne, and who will bring together the role of priest and king. And do you know the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is our great high priest who goes into the holy of holies on our behalf and offers a sacrifice once and for all of our sin. And that sacrifice is no um, less than himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He sacrifices himself in our place as the high priest, and the one who dies for us is the one who reigns forever. Jesus is ultimately the one whom Zechariah is pointing to, which the New Testament will reveal to us. And as God says, come back to me, return to me in order to do the work, it's a returning to dependence on the Spirit of God and an expectation of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of God. God's presence comes to us through the work of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. And when we return to Him, we experience His power and, and joy. And it says that that day will be a great day of rejoicing and celebrating. So God says in, in Zechariah 1-6, through Return to me as you're discouraged in your work. What you need most isn't a different strategy, but what you need most is me. So come to me, sovereign, working out all these things will be just and will judge the nations, will protect and defend you, will cleanse you from your sin, and most of all, will empower you by my spirit to do the work. And then chapter 7 through 8, we see the, uh, the call to, uh, to listen to God's word. So return to the Lord and then listen to his word. Chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 18, we see that the word of the Lord comes. And ultimately, we're going to see that it's the, the Word of God that does the work of God and the people of God. It's God's Word that awakens us from going through the motions. The, the people, it says in chapter 7, if you look uh, in, <clears throat> in verse, verses 1 through 3, we won't read it, but the people come and they say, should we keep uh, fasting? Uh, 
now that the temple's being rebuilt. Once the people of Israel went into exile, they fasted uh, during different months for different things. And one of the fasts was, was during the month in which the temple was destroyed. They would fast during that time, asking God to work and to rebuild the temple. And, and so they come and they say, should we keep fasting? And Zechariah, as any good preacher does, takes their question and he turns it into uh, a message. And he says to them, the word of the Lord uh, uh, the word of the Lord of the host came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? He cuts to the heart of the issue. The people are coming asking this question about, hey, do we have to keep fasting? The temple's being rebuilt. And, Ze- and Zechariah sees through it and he says, why were you doing it? Were you doing it to go through the motions or were you doing it for me? Are you trying to curry God's favor and to get him to do something for you? And now that he's done it, you don't want to sacrifice anymore for him? Or are you seeking God? Do you believe that he's all you need? And do you find him to be all that you want? He's, he's saying that God's word has come to the people and it's challenging them to awaken from going through the motions. And I think that's one of the challenges. Anytime uh, a period sets in, I think one of the challenges we face as a church as we come out of COVID is the the rhythms that we've established, the habits that we've established in our hearts and in our practices in the Christian life that we need to be awakened from going through the motions and to return to the Lord. And as we return to him, we need to listen to his word. And ultimately, what I want you to see, we can't read through in length here, because of time, but ultimately I want you to see that God's word doesn't just inform our minds. God's word's not just lessons for us to learn and to memorize, but ultimately God's word changes our heart and it transforms our relationships. Changes our heart and it transforms our relationships. Look look in chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. The word of the Lord comes and Zechariah says, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But the challenge for Israel is the same challenge for us. Look in verse 11. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear, and they made their hearts diamond hard. that they should hear the law and the words of the Lord. They wouldn't listen to God. God told them that as his word came, it was a word that was coming to transform inside them that would work itself in their relationships with others. As I read this this week, I was just reminded that the measure of our love for God will most often be seen in our treatment of others. Do you believe that to be true? That your love for God perhaps is most tangibly measured, not by the the acts of devotion that you do for God, but by your treatment of other people. It's why Jesus wouldn't separate the two greatest commands, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We can know a lot of stuff, but if it doesn't sink down from here to here and change this so that it works itself out here, and in our feet that moves us towards others to love and care and serve for others, then we're just people who know a lot. But we're not really listening to the Word of God. Revival comes 
when God's people start listening to his word. And when we start listening to his word, we don't have diamond hard hearts. I don't know a lot about diamonds, but I know that they're pretty indestructible and expensive. <clears throat> but <clears throat> their hearts were hardened. And when we truly listen to the word of God, we return to him with an eagerness to hear what he says, receive it in our hearts and allow it to be worked out in our lives. And then again, he says in chapter 8 that the word of the Lord comes. Look in verse 14. It says that the word of the Lord came. And again, he gave the word to the people. And he says in verse 16, speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And he says, there's no need for fasting. Feasting is going to come. Seasons of joy and gladness. Verse 19 at the end of it. Therefore, love truth and peace. Love truth and peace. The, the measure of our obedience to God is demonstrated in how we treat others. When revival comes, it comes when we come back to God, but we know we're back to God and in His presence when we start uh, acting differently towards others, when love spills over from our hearts. And do you know, as God's people begin to practice this, when they begin to do this, it says that the peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants. This is verse 20 of chapter 8. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another and saying, hey, let's go at once and, and, and treat the favor of God and seek the Lord. I myself am going. Many peoples of strong nations shall come seeking the Lord. Verse 23, they shall, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue, which is a way of saying many people, will go and take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The mark of revival is that people look at Christians and say, God has been with them. They've changed. They, their lives are different. Their love is different. The way they care, the way that they serve is different. One of the greatest ways we may be used in drawing people to faith in Christ is living out an authentic Christian life in relationship to one another and in relationship to those around us. We can't impress people with our Christianity. We can't make Jesus cool enough. We can't make Jesus relevant enough. He has no need to be relevant. He's eternally relevant and, and is the one in whom will draw people to himself. But how will people know how beautiful and how good Jesus is if not the people of God allow his word to work in us, to change our hearts, to transform our relationships? I'm just convicted as I read this, as I think to myself, I've, I spend so much time thinking about so many different things that I need to do, and I'm asking that God would use me to do to see others come to faith in Christ. And, and what God is saying is, are you listening to my word? Pastor Chris gave us this challenge last week. Are you really listening to God? Are you obedient to him? When God speaks, do you listen? How often do we relativize what God says? And we say, well, I know what he says, but I'm not going to do that. Or I'm doing this. It's not as bad as what other people are doing. How often do we take the edge off what God says for ourselves as well as for others? When we begin to listen to God's work, word, he begins to work in us. And as he works in us, he draws people to himself. God works in us through his word. And we need that desperately if we hope to see God work through us to draw others to himself. And then finally, Zechariah 9 through 14 tells us to look to the Savior. 
It's two oracles. They begin, both of them, with judgment. And, and then they begin to speak of one who is to come, one who is a shepherd, one who is a king. Speaks of, of one who <clears throat> is the branch. We have this vision of a humble shepherd king coming to save his people. We read Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 17 to begin our service. Rejoice! Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This isn't Zerubbabel. This isn't Joshua the high priest. They're not mentioned in the oracles of chapter 9 through 14. This is one who is to come, who will come as the king to save, but coming in humility, riding on a donkey. And this humble shepherd king will come and he will establish his rule from sea to sea, it says in verse 10. And he will, because of the blood of his covenant, set us free from our sin. It says that this shepherd king who is going to come is is going to bring about salvation through being pierced. On our behalf, look in chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him, God is speaking and he's saying they're going to look on me, God, whom they have pierced. God is going to come and they're going to pierce him and they'll mourn for him as one who mourns for a child. And then it it talks about how they have uh, shepherds in chapter 11 that will eventually lead Israel astray in the the coming years. But there's this shepherd, this shepherd king who's going to suffer on their behalf. In verse 1 of chapter 13, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. How will God open a fountain to cleanse the people from sin? He'll open the fountain to cleanse them from sin by being pierced on their behalf. And it goes on to say in chapter 7 that they strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And in verse 9, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And chapter 14 ends, the the Messiah who's rejected, the shepherd king who's rejected and is pierced and is struck for us, is the same one in verse 9 that says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. You see, the, the whole work that God is doing in rebuilding the temple points forward to the work of what Jesus comes to do, who came and said, you can build the temple and in three days I'm going to tear it down and in three days rebuild it. He wasn't talking about the temple building. He was talking about himself. He was the presence of God among us. And he died on our behalf, was pierced. That's what the, the, the soldier said as they pierced him and they looked upon him. He said, surely this is the Son of God. And that as he was struck, the disciples were scattered, but he draws them back together and they call upon him. He says, you are my people and I am your God. The work of revival that God wants to do will only come if we keep our eyes on Jesus. We'll only return to him and listen to his word as our, as our hearts and our eyes are fixed on Jesus. J.I. Packer, as he talks about genuine revival, he describes genuine revival in this way. He said, God comes down 
and works among us. And as God comes down as a work among us by the Spirit of God, His Word pierces our hearts and we're convicted of our sin and man begins to see his sin. And as man begins to see his sin, the cross becomes valued above everything. It's exactly what Zechariah is saying. God comes, His Word pierces, we see our sin. And it's the cross that's foreshadowed in Zechariah through Jesus being pierced and struck on our behalf. And as we begin to value the cross, change begins to work deep in our hearts. And as change works deep in our heart, love breaks out in our relationships. And as love breaks out in our relationships, joy fills our hearts and the church becomes itself again. The church becomes what it's meant to be, the people of God, listening to the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, magnifying the son of God. That's the work of revival that we can't do in our own strength, but what God does as we turn to him. And when the church becomes itself and the church is doing those things, do you know that the lost are found? Those who are far from God come home. The church is emboldened to speak his name, to suffer for his sake, to serve sacrificially, to lay down our lives, to become the least so that God might be made the greatest. And no doubt, as God is working in us and through us, Satan keeps his pace, Packer says. And the work of spiritual warfare continues on as Satan opposes the work of God, just like he does in chapter 3. And all of this, we see the work of revival as a work that God does as his people return to him. I just want to ask us, will we return to the Lord? Maybe you say, Michael, I don't. I've, I've been staying pretty close to him. But perhaps, perhaps today, here in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We all just need to ask ourselves, where are we at in relation to the Lord? You know, one thing can be true. God never moves. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sometimes when he seems distant, it's not because he moved. It's because we moved. It's because our hearts wander. Our hearts grow cold. We grow discouraged. We need to be reminded that the work that God wants to do us comes by the Spirit of God and through the work of, of the Son of God on our behalf. He was pierced for our sins. He's the priest who makes sacrifice and the king who reigns. 